the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It is a delight to welcome back to the show Jeffrey H. Anderson. Jeff Anderson is uh, many things. He is the founder of the American Main Street Initiative, uh, where he is the president. He is a regular contributor to City Journal, and he served as the director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics at the U.S. Department of Justice from 2017 to 2021, About many, uh, among many other things. I first... Um, uh, uh, he first came to my attention uh, with his work in uh, City, City Journal early on in writing about uh, the problems and the policies surrounding the problems with masking to uh, stop, solve and prevent transmission of COVID. And as I was reading uh, news story after news story, is it time to put the mask on again? The kids are not all right. Time to require masks when they go back to school in January. Uh, all over the place, children need to wear masks as COVID is surging again. I thought it would be a good idea to check in with Jeff Anderson once again. His most recent piece on the issue was in uh, the summer of uh, this summer at City Journal, city-journal.org. Masks still don't work. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Sorry for the long windup. Oh, thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure to be back. You betcha. It's great to have you. I always joke, though, I mean, with all my experts that I have on this show, you among them, you know, it's never really over good news. Um, you, you know, it's it's things th- <laughs> things are going just great and we're removing the masks. Let's call Jeff Anderson. That doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't. No, happen. that's true. That's true. Although there's certainly plenty of opportunity to celebrate human folly in this. I guess that's right. I guess that's right. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know what, while we're on, before we get to masks, talk a little bit about the American Main Street Initiative, AmericanMainStreet.org. Main Street Americans are under assault from the radical left after decades of having been neglected or undermined by establishment elites. Jeff, what what bothers you the most that's going on in all our goings on right now? What's 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 bothering you the most? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a there's so many things I can't possibly (laughs) narrow it down to one. I mean, masks are among the worst and the vaccines. But I mean, more broadly, I guess the the wokeism and the uh, and the ongoing assault by by the you know, the woke extremists, the leftist extremists against our Constitution, our founding principles, and the traditional American way of life. So I started the American Main Street Initiative um, last year to, uh, to try to, um, pr- you know, secure the, the Constitution and the American way of life and fight against these, all these woke efforts that Americans are getting hit with from all quarters. One of the big pieces of news today that I fear only really conservatives or mostly only conservatives know about is learning about the FBI embedding itself and paying 
uh, millions of dollars to a news outlet in order to suppress certain news. You think about this kind of stuff. You think you look at CNN and other main, mainstream media outlets. They're not touching this story. Uh, once upon a time, this is exactly what the press was all about, was going after the government for trying to influence the news and tell lies and suppress stories. They're not touching it. Karen Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, says it's not for her to speak about. Um, boy, I'll tell you, Jeff, do you worry that this country is fueled by two different narratives about the news of the day, the goings on? I mean, if you get your news from CNN and The Washington Post, you won't know this, which I think is one of the most incredible stories of the year. Yeah, it's certainly worrisome. I think even more worrisome, you kind of hint at it there, is that it used to be that liberals and conservatives alike both believed in freedom of speech, freedom yeah. of the press, yeah. investigative t- journalism. And um, I think there's still old-school liberals who believe in these things, but but the more radical leftists, uh, the woke crowd, they don't like freedom of speech. They certainly don't want journalists investigating anything that might be inconvenient. Um, and so it's a, there's a sort of dearth of of meaningful good information and debate. I mean, a republic requires a lot of deliberation and debate and informed citizens. And, um, and, and, and yeah, you're right. I think most people are just simply not getting that. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to help uh, yeah. fill that void in yeah. some small way, but, yeah. um, I agree. No, it, and the issue of debate, I, you know, we, we would love to debate these issues. It's hard to debate with someone who doesn't have the same facts or start with the same facts that you have, right? I mean, so in a sense, you know, to debate even liberals on this issue, never mind leftists, they would have to have a basis of knowledge of what has happened, what has transpired, what is going on here. And they simply don't. Uh, contrarily, I think it is fair to say, you correct me if you have a different thought on this, that we in the conservative movement, we know their facts. We know what their stories are, partly because we're a little more intellectually curious, but more importantly, because we can't avoid it. It's everywhere in the air. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, it's exactly. Conservatives cannot escape the mainstream news. Um, I, I, I agree, but I would even add to that that I think even it's not just that both sides have sort of different sets right. of facts. Right. And that, that's, a, that's a problem, but you can, you can have a discussion based on that in yeah. debate, but... What I find, what I've found to be really striking in the mask debates is... Yeah, that's a good example. You, Masks are great. Yeah, go there. Yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can present the facts to, to a committed person on the left, and they simply don't care. Right. I mean, it is not at all relevant. And I think that is, is reflected all the way up to the highest echelons of the public health officials in this country. Um, they, they knew good and well that the evidence suggested masks did little to no good, it might even be counterproductive, mm-hmm. as of March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, in the first three days of April of 2020, they did a complete about-face, yeah. not because they had all of a sudden learned that there was evidence masks worked, but because they didn't care. They wanted to be seen as doing something. They wanted to, uh, they always kind of wanted people to wear masks, and this was a great opportunity to get them to do so, because you know, public health officials love public health intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, this isn't about the facts. 
um, especially, I think especially for those on the left. It's not even really about the truth. You know, so famously, Anthony Fauci, in one of his first big interviews on COVID, I think it was on NBC, I'm pretty sure it was, he said he was asked about masks and he said they don't work. They don't provide the perfect protection. You can even get, I think they used the word schmutz on them. You can, uh, you know, handle them poorly and they can actually do more harm than good. And then when he did the turnabout on those and was asked about it, he didn't he, he didn't even fess up. What he said was, I was worried about the supply. I was worried about the supply of masks for, you know, first responders and hospital personnel. Well, that's not what he said. And that wasn't the reasoning he gave us. And that was within about the first three months of COVID all in. How this man stayed in his office, having lied to the American people for the first time on his first out on his first uh, outing, is is an incredible is an incredible thing to me. Well, that, yeah, that's uh, that's that's par for the course for Fauci to yep. say the least. Right. I mean, the man spent forty years doing that. I mean, okay. his, his his modus operandi was to just say whatever the the liberal press wanted him to say, and and he was he's just. The case study is someone who's never concerned with the facts, um, and and his his claim that he reversed field on masks yeah. because he was worried initial, initially about availability is such nonsense right. that so many people did fall for that. Right, right, it is nonsense, and it was the first of many, many, many lies, and I think that is the right word for it. I mean, when it got to the end of the uh, end of last year, he was caught changing the numbers on what the percentage of the population would be needed for herd immunity. And the New York Times said, you used to say it was 70 percent. Now you're saying it's 80, 85, maybe 90 percent. What changed? He said, I didn't think the American people were ready to hear my real opinion. So he's he's outwardly saying that he's lying to the American people. And we still uh, lionize him. We still write children's books about him. We still make of him a hero. This is a man who lied worse to the American people than Richard Nixon. Oh, absolutely. Far worse. And on public health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, he, is, he's the, he is the opposite of a man of science. He is not at all, I mean, despite what he says, um, not only is he not science, he's not a man of science. He, he just, he, he does not care what the facts say. He's got an agenda, and the primary part of that agenda is simply enriching himself. I mean, he's extraordinarily well compensated, just in his, I mean, the most well-paid federal official, more so than the president, um, and and then uh, on top of that, all the the money he got for his cozy relationship with Big Pharma. Yeah, well, yeah. All right, listen, I've got to take a quick break. Let's talk a little bit about what we know and what we don't know about masks, uh, especially uh, in the light of also all this intelligence that many of us predicted, most of the mainstream media wanted to ignore or suppress about the you know the mental health and certainly even educational health of the children and the hell we put them through with this uh, fetish over masks. Let me take a quick commercial break. Jeff Anderson and I will be right back to talk about what the data actually shows. You want to learn more about him or his organization? AmericanMainStreet.org. Jeff and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Okay, as the news agencies and many public health officials are asking us and our children to be walking billboards of public fear and sickness, 
with the remasking. Jeff Anderson, a regular contributor to City Journal, president and founder of the American Main Street Initiative. He's done all the research on this. Masks still don't work. The title of your last uh, or second to last piece, I think, second to most recent piece at City Journal. More than two years on, you write, the best scientific evidence says that masks don't stop COVID and public health officials continue to ignore it. All right, Jeff Anderson, tell us what we need to know here, sir. (laughs) Yeah, so the gold standard in medical research is randomized controlled trials where someone, you have one group that gets the intervention, whether it's a medicine or in this case masks, and you have another group that is the control group that does not get the intervention but the people, um, well, then you can just test the two against each other. Randomized controlled trials are what are always tested. They're the gold standard by far in, in medical research. There have been 15 randomized controlled trials, RCTs, on masks, and collectively they show little to no evidence that masks work and some evidence that they may be counterproductive. Mm-hmm. In fact, Overall, I would say that the 15 RCTs show a little more evidence that masks are probably counterproductive than they, than they show that they, w- that they work. And this includes um, a, 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 an RCT from Bangladesh, mm-hmm. which is the main one, the mm-hmm. most recent. Mm-hmm. It's one that the, uh, you know, the public health officials are really hanging their hat on now. But it is so full of methodological flaws that check out these conclusions, Seth. I mean, does this sound remotely believable to you? So the Bangladesh RCT found that um, pe- for people under 40, there was no statistically significant evidence that masks work. For people in their 40s, there was statistically significant evidence that cloth masks work, but no such evidence for surgical masks. For people over 50, there was statistically signif- significant evidence that surgical masks work, but not cloth masks. Mm-hmm. And, and then, furthermore, there was evidence that red masked work, red cloth masks worked, but purple ones did not, even though the two are supposed to be identical. Yes. I mean, it, it is a it's a case study in politicized, um, methodologically not just sloppy, but uh, totally lacking credibility. I would argue study and so when you, but even when you throw that in the mix, I mean, the Bangladesh study shows this tiny little. Uh, Little difference. In, there were. Well, let me just give you the, the numbers real quick. There were out of more than a thousand people in each group, there were twenty more people in the uh, control group who got COVID. I mean, so a two percent difference. It's yeah. just tiny. So, all in all, the RCTs do not show that masks work. And so, uh, but the public health officials have decided to ignore those and instead look at something called mechanism-based reasoning. They've, they've even got a term for it now, <laughs> which is basically reasoning based on how the, the mechanism, the masks, seems like it should work. Yeah. And they decided that that's the way to go. You know, I, 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 I knew this jig was up early on. I, I think you did. I think most people with common sense did. And I think Anthony Fauci did. Um, somewhere towards the end of 2020, I have to go back and check, but it was around just as winter was getting started. It was around October. Michael Osterholm, who I, I kind of think might have been the most or maybe is the second most famous epidemiologist in the country. He was an advisor to Joe Biden. I remember seeing his name with bird flu stuff in years prior. You may or may not know who I'm talking about. I think he's based out of Minnesota. He went on NPR and he said, uh, based on his conclusions, cloth masks don't work. And this was a headline at NPR. 
And just for fun, for the next month, I kept going. I, I haven't looked in a while. Kept going to the NPR store where they were just selling those cloth masks. There seems to be a profit motive behind some of this, even as the truth does leak out from time to time on this, Jeff. Yeah, although I think it's more of a control motive. Okay. I, they love okay. the thought of, of us looking like a bunch of uh, scared, sniveling mask yeah. subjects, yeah. who, as opposed to free men and women breathing in the fresh air of freedom and actually interacting with each other and seeing each other's expressions. Um, and, and, you know, and, and some on the left are granting now that maybe the cloth masks don't really work right. so well. But, the, but all the, the RCTs suggest the surgical masks yeah. don't work. Right. It's not just the cloth masks. And that's true of the, the Bangladesh study as well. It's cloth and surgical masks have no real scientific support. Now, if you want to walk around all day with a professionally fitted N95 mask on your face like a suction cup, um, it's possible that might work. But who wants to live like that? Well, I'm afraid that if you say it too much, Jeff, that's where they're going to go. So let's let's put the let's tamp down on that suggestion. I do I'm not even saying that necessarily works. I mean, it may work. That's all they need. That's all they need. Well, Jeff Anderson says they may work. Let's let's mandate it. The negative consequences to children has also been dramatic too. There are two stories taking place here. The story of uh, children's education deficits, of course, but also this dramatic increase in mental health problems. And no one seems to give a damn about it. Uh, It's a weird society that cares more or seemingly cares, let's say virtue signaling cares about our lungs than our brains. I I just think it's an awful, awful place we've come to, Jeff. Yeah, well, I think that's where you see more evidence that this is about control. Yeah. I mean, who got stuck with the worst of this? The kids. The people who are easiest to control. I mean, it's just so appalling to me when you you see parents walk into a store with themselves being unmasked and their kids being masked. I mean, it's almost as bad when the parents also have masks on, but it's even slightly worse when they just force it on the kids and don't even, you know, do it themselves. And this, this COVID mercifully was it spared kids. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. by and large, kids were, were more or less exempted from the effects yep. of this. Yep. And, and yet, rather than saying, you know, thank, you know, thank God, let's, uh, let's, let's just, at least one part of our society is not going to be affected. It was like, uh, I mean, they got yanked out of school. They yep. got forced to wear these masks. Yep. They got, I mean, can you imagine, the, I mean, the developmental uh, declines, the, the loss of, whether it's a baby who couldn't see people's faces and couldn't, w- w- couldn't learn how to talk himself as well as he might have been able to otherwise, or, or like an adolescent who's mm-hmm. sort of awkward and mm-hmm. trying to learn how to interact with other people and everyone has a mask on. And these are, these are not small things. And, um, so, yeah, or pitting kids against actually, each other and pitting families against each other. I mean, all of this soothing and using children to soothe the anxieties of adults seems like to me a particular, a particularly egregious ter- uh, form of torture to it to to a society. And yet, that's the road we're going to keep going down for a little bit. It seems like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more than ninety nine point nine nine percent of kids in America have not died of COVID. Nope. They've either gotten it and recovered, or they haven't gotten it. Yep. And that more than 99.99% figure is true in tyrannical California, just yep. as it's true in free Florida. Yep, but they are dying from from uh, fentanyl overdoses, especially here in Arizona. <laughs> something like three yes, to six times the rate in one year of all of them that have from COVID, and there is no messaging on that. We are misprioritized. Jeff, uh, listen, 
happy holidays, Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Hanukkah, whatever it is for and to you. And uh, let's make a New Year's resolution to make these visits more frequent next year. That sounds great, Seth. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. Thank you. Jeffrey H. Anderson, president and founder of the American Main Street Think Tank. AmericanMainStreet.org is the website. I'm Seth, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. At the start of 2022, you could invest in almost anything and make money. The stock market was still growing. Real estate was high and cryptocurrency was all the rage. What a difference a year makes. 2023 is going to be a year of economic upheaval, according to many economists. And the Biden regime is pressing ahead with its leftist agenda, ignoring the growing signs of a recession. But many financial experts are warning of massive layoffs and huge stock market convulsions, which is why I recommend calling the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group to safeguard your money and investments with the stability of gold. Gold holds its value when economies fail, guarding against the ravages of inflation, ruins of a recession. Talk with the good folks at Midas Gold Group by checking them out at MidasGoldGroup.com or better yet, give them a call at 480 480- Three six zero three thousand. That's four eight zero three six zero three thousand. Gold you can hold. Midas Gold Group. Jennifer Say, you know who she is. Some of you maybe. She was the president of branding at Levi Strauss in San Francisco, who mm-hmm. lost her job because she kept recommending that uh, Heaven for Fend schools reopen, and she had suggested that they use some of their. Um, donation, some of their charitable contribution money at Levi Strauss to help pay for remedial education for the children that were locked out of schools. Uh, She has a new piece up at Substack, The Loneliest Generation. Well, what the hell caused it? There were no weddings, graduations, proms, holiday celebrations, funerals, AA meetings, or in-person work with water cooler conversations. And then all of a sudden we're lonely and the Democratic political leaders have the gall to weaponize our loneliness against us. She's worth reading always. Uh, Jennifer Say, S-E-Y. A story, and uh, I kind of like to run it maybe uh, run it uh, by Hugh Hallman when he joins us a little bit later. Uh, really interesting story by Holly Corby over at KQ. ED. Young adults are struggling with their mental health. Is more childhood independence the answer? Bethany Mandel flagged this on uh, Twitter. Um, Assistant Professor Brett Mallon begins his evening Zoom session at Kansas State University with a question. When students hear the word conflict, what associations do they make? Many first responses are decidedly negative. I would say avoid it at all costs, one student says. Argument, awkward conversation, says another. The list grows as students make emotional associations they have with conflict, stress, discomfort, war. Only one student suggests that he thinks of conflict as an opportunity for growth. Um, This is a new version of conflict resolution, a non-credit workshop called Adulting 101 at Kansas State. The cheeky name created by the campus um, belies its serious purpose to fill in the gaps of missing life skills for students with classes that range from the practical, like how to make a budget, to the relational. Students talk about conflict like it's a terrible thing, the professor said. Is it that they're afraid of conflict or are they lacking in experience? 
this is the new question we need to um, we need to wrestle with. A growing body of evidence is beginning to suggest that problems of adulting and mental health in college students may be rooted at least in part in modern childhood. Research shows that young people are lacking in emotional resilience and independence compared to previous generations. Surprise, surprise. We've been talking about this for a long time. The problem, ha- and now, now the intellectuals are catching up. The problem has been growing in tandem with rising rates of anxiety and depression, perhaps exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, and has left colleges scrambling to help and adapt. All of this was covered, what, five years ago by Prager in uh, No Safe Spaces. Some parents have been parenting differently. They have this value of success at all costs, says uh, one executive director at the Center for Psychiatric Rehab in Boston. I like to describe it as some kids are growing up developmentally delayed, this uh, this professor, uh, Dory Hutchinson, writes. Today's 18-year-olds are like 12-year-olds from a decade ago. They have very little tolerance for conflict and discomfort, and COVID exposed it. I want to talk some more about this. We've talked about, uh, yeah, we've talked about um, children in adult bodies. We've talked about ruining childhood. We've talked about disappearing and trying to save childhood and the importance of it and the maturation process. Looks like this uh, this group is just beginning to get their hands around it in maybe a positive way for us to think about. We'll talk about it when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're concerned with stock market volatility, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. And there is no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily. You are paid monthly and there are no fees. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right. Ten and a quarter percent. A due diligence approved firm. You can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. I'm fascinated by this uh, piece at uh, kqed.org, how modern childhood changed and changed mental health. Research shows that young people who arrive on college campuses with healthy amounts of resilience and independence do better both academically and emotionally. But today, more students of all backgrounds are arriving on campus with significantly less experience in dealing with life's ups and downs. Many even see normal adult activities as risky or dangerous. Remember what I was saying in the previous segment, uh, according to one expert who's thinking along these lines, she says today's 18-year-olds are like 12-year-olds from a decade ago. We have infantilized adults and we have made um, infants of adults at the same time. These lines are crossing, unfortunately. In a new study, a Georgetown psychologist looked at whether American college students' threshold for what is considered risky – Risky was comparable to their global peers. Her team interviewed students from Turkey, 
Russia, Canada, and the United States, asking them to describe a risky or dangerous experience they had last month. Turkish and Russian students described witnessing events that involved actual risk. Violent fights on public transportation, hazardous driving conditions caused by drunk drivers, women being aggressively followed on the street. But American students were far more likely to cite as dangerous things that most adults do every day, like being alone outside or simply taking a ride alone in an Uber. The American student's risk threshold was quite low, according to the researchers. Students who reported they gained independence later in childhood, going to the grocery store, riding public transportation, for example, viewed their university campuses as more dangerous. Those same students also had fewer positive emotions when describing risky situations. Uh, this uh, this researcher uh, says that um, these students have fewer opportunities when they have fewer opportunities to practice autonomy. They have less faith in themselves that they can figure out a risky situation. Quote, my suspicion is that low autonomy seems to translate into low efficacy, low efficacy and a combination of stress is associated with distress like anxiety. And depression. Are we seeing a rise in young adults claiming to have or doctors claiming that they have their patients who are young adults have an increased uh, number of patients with anxiety and depressions? In recent years, other psychologists have made similar associations. According to Jonathan Haidt, who has used Nassim Taleb's theory of anti-fragility to explain how kids' social and emotional systems act much more like our bones and immune systems, within reason, testing and stressing them doesn't break them but makes them stronger. A strong culture of safetyism, which prizes the safety of children above all else, has prevented young people from putting stress on the bones, so to speak. So children are likely to suffer more when exposed later to other unpleasant but ordinary life events. Psychologists have directly connected a lack of resilience and independence to the growth of mental health problems and psychiatric disorders in young adults and say that short cycles of stress or conflict are not only harmful, they are essential to human development. But modern childhood, for a variety of reasons, provides few opportunities for kids to practice those skills. It's a confluence of factors including more time spent on smartphones and, smartphones and social media, less time for free play, a culture that prizes safety at the expense of building other characteristics, fears of kidnapping, and more adult-directed activities. All of these together have created a culture that keeps kids far away from the kinds of experiences that build resilience. You know, I was thinking about, as I was reading that, I was thinking a little bit about what we were talking about just the other day with regard to the kinds of things we are giving our children to read these days. We're not giving them the stuff that we grew up with anymore. We're not giving them stories, classic stories, classic children's literature, classic children's stories about good and evil, right and wrong, heroes and anti-heroes, exploration, discovery and mystery the kind of stuff uh, that is written about in books like The Disappearance of Childhood or The Uses of Enchantment, uh, the famous Bruno Bettelheim stuff. No, 
No, we're giving them stuff to teach them to be ashamed of things. Ashamed of things like their sex. Ashamed of things like their race. Let's go to Jim in Phoenix. Hello, Jim. Hi, Seth. How are you? I'm fine. I was calling about your topic regarding kids having difficulty navigating adulthood. And I think all of this goes back into the 1990s where uh, the adults decided that a child's self-esteem was so important that they began not keeping score in soccer games, not having all-star teams. In other words, they prevented the child from experiencing any unpleasant emotions, and therefore they grew up with no coping skills. And then you end up with a bunch of 18-year-olds on college campuses not being able to handle speech that doesn't align with their views. And so they want campus safe spaces. That then leads to censorship. And all of this goes back to the way the children were acculturated by, uh, uh, by you know, older generations. Um, Little League was founded in the 1930s, and they talked to a child psychologist about what the goals of the program should be at that time. And the psychologist said... Um, that the goal of the program should be to prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. And all we've been doing for the last 30 years is preparing the path for the child and neglecting the skills that the child needs to navigate the path on his own or her own. Jim, you spoke that beautifully. You said that beautifully. Are you in a related profession that touches on this stuff? I couldn't have said it as well as you did. No, I'm a lawyer okay. by trade. Okay. So, well, um, but, no, but um, this is right. Children um, naturally used to be able to and were taught to be able to and through the literature and the stories and the games that we put them through, were able to – they were able to experience and overcome the tor- turmoil of their feelings and that wrestling, that, that word turmoil, that turmoil with them – is what got them to an emotional safe place to emotional maturity. We've taken away that. How to solve. Yes, yes. How to, how to solve, solve a problem, problem, how to think own. through it, and how to be yeah. well adjusted. Remember when we used to talk about being well adjusted once upon a We've taken away all of that from them and instead have instilled all kinds of new and different lessons as if we want to change their nature. And, and we and, also learned yeah. how to set our feelings aside. Yes, yes, we learned that yeah. rather than making a fetish of them. Jim, thank you for that. That was really well said. I appreciate your call very much and your contribution. I'll be right back. It seems to me when you look at the children's literature of yore from fairy tales up into even really some of the classic works that uh, many of us had into the early 1970s, let us say, that this idea of safety or safetyism or safety at all costs was nowhere to be found. When you survey the children's literature from the periods when we were a more mature, serious and, dare I say, Uh, brave and successful and adult society, it was based on a training of kids, not obviously to be reckless. Aristotle teaches that there is a mean to everything between there is a mean between, you know, cowardice and recklessness. It's it's but it's it's not 
It's not to put safetyism at the extreme. Think about your favorite childhood tales. Think about children understanding the heroism and the antiheroism or the journey or the discovery or even going out on dangerous journeys. Think about some of the kinds of things that uh, Bruno Bettelheim wrote in The Uses of Enchantment. For a story to truly hold the child's attention, it must entertain him and arouse his curiosity. But to enrich his life, he writes, it must stimulate his imagination, help him to develop his intellect and to clarify his emotions, be attuned to his anxieties and aspirations, given full recognition of his difficulties, while at the same time suggesting solutions to the problems which perturb him. You need the perturbance. You need the turmoil. In short, it must at one and the same time relate to all aspects of personality, and this without belittling, but on the contrary, giving full credence to the serious of predicament, while simultaneously promoting confidence. Um, the entirety, really, of children's literature, he writes, with rare exception, showed that nothing could be as enriching and satisfying to the child and adult alike as the folk fairy tale. True, on an, overt, on an overt level, fairy tales teach little about the specific conditions of life in modern mass society. These tales were created long before it came into being, but more can be learned from them about the inner problems of human beings and of the right solutions to predicaments in society than from any type of story with a child, within a child's comprehension. Since the child at every moment of his life is exposed to the society in which he lives, he will learn to cope with its conditions provided his inner resources are permitted to let him do so rather than shielding him from all that and exposing it to him once he leaves the house. The reversal of that is why today's 18-year-olds are like yesterday's 12-year-olds. Hugh Hallman coming in. We'll go over some of this with him. I'm Seth Leapson. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 